You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, the summer of 1967 is referred to by many as the summer of love. A lot of things going on that summer. You know, the midst of the Vietnam War, hippies gathering in various places across the the world in England and the west coast of the United States. And there was a band called the Beatles. And that summer, they released a song called All You Need Is Love. Is that true? That all you need is love? Well, kind of, but just not in the way that John Lennon meant it, right? We're going to consider that today, love, love of neighbor, and what the Lord's Word would say to us about it. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 13. We're going to be looking today at verses 8 through 14, and as you're turning in your copy of the Scriptures or turning your phone on and pulling it up, by way of of context and reminder for those who have been with us, and maybe if you're newer and you've not been tracking through the book of Romans, this will be the first time you've heard this information, but I trust it may help you. For 11 chapters of the letter to the Romans, Paul had expounded the gospel and the law and the gospel and union with Christ and all these wonderful soaring truths and the certainty of our life with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth and how nothing in all the universe could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then in light of all of that, Paul turns, beginning in Romans 12, to consider how the people of God, the saints of the church, are to live. He appeals on the basis of what he had already written and based upon the mercies of God. And he tells us, appeals to us, by the mercies of God, to present ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. We are not to be conformed to this world but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to walk in step with that renewal and live in light of the hope of the world to come. With humility and sober-mindedness, we are to immerse ourselves in the church. We are to use the gifts that God has given us for the good of our brothers and sisters and for the building up of the body of Christ. We are to hate What is evil? We're to hold fast with all of our might to what is good. Our lives in the church are to be characterized by genuine love and care for one another. Our lives in the church are to be characterized by humility, not living out of rivalry and conceit, but considering others legitimately as more significant than ourselves. Our lives in the church are to be characterized by the pursuit and the preservation of unity. And when it comes to those outside the church who persecute us or seek to do us harm, Paul says we bless them and not curse them. We don't seek to repay evil for evil. But as much as it depends on us, we seek to live peaceably with everyone. And we don't avenge ourselves. We leave that to the Lord. 
who will administer perfect justice. And then in Romans 13, Paul continues to teach us how we're to live. And he says that we're to be subject to governing authorities. And this is because God is the one who has instituted them for the good of the common kingdom of the world. Civil government is the mechanism for order and the administration of justice in this life. And so even paying taxes to the government is appropriate and good. And we owe governing authorities respect and honor. That's where we've been. Let's now look to Romans 13 and verse 8. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. I have a simple plan for us. I want to preach, aim to preach this message in two parts. Part one is living in step with the law, verses 8 to 10. Part two, living in the day and walking in the light, verses 11 through 14. We'll take them one at a time. Part one, living in step with the law. Put your eyes on verse 8. Paul begins that verse with these words, Owe no one anything. Now remember what was just written in verse 7. You can put your eyes there. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor. That was in regard to the civil government. We are to pay and render what we owe, whether that be debts of money or respect. Paul now expands the principle to include our interactions with everyone. This principle applies, in other words, not just to our relationships with the government, but to our relationships with every person. Now, just to nip this in the bud, maybe you've heard that this verse is a reason why we should never borrow money. Let's just kill that right now. The, that is not what this verse is talking about. There are many places in Scripture that indicate that borrowing money is a fine thing to do. And in fact, ink is spilled in the Scriptures about how that should be done justly. What Paul means here in saying, owe oh, no one anything, is simply this. We are not to withhold from anyone what we owe them. Very straightforward. That might be material, money, goods. That might be respect, honor. 
when we withhold from others what is their due, you realize that we functionally break the Eighth Commandment to not steal. Paul goes on, owe no one anything, put your eyes on the text, except to love each other. So love to others is beautifully held out to us as the one debt that will always be outstanding. Love to others is a debt that will always remain due. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, says Paul. That's the ground of his exhortation. Love is the fulfillment of the law in all that the law commands regarding our interactions with our neighbor. Paul goes on to further explain this assertion. You can put your eyes on verse 9. Paul, in that verse, as you scan over it, cites several commands from the second table of the law. Now, you're going to hear me say the second table of the law, just a quick clarification on what that means. When God gave his moral law to Moses that was summarized in 10 words and written on two tablets of stone, the first four commandments, the first table of the law as it's known, pertain to how we are to love God. The latter six commandments, the second table of the law, pertain to how we are to love neighbor. So that's what we mean. Paul cites several commands from the second table of the law, and then he observes that they all are encompassed in God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is obvious that if we loved our neighbor perfectly, we would never violate any of the commands of the second table of the law. Never. Now observe this too, saints. Just from verse 9. The law of God is good and wise. Amen, someone. It is admirable in its simplicity and its comprehensiveness. It is also entirely reasonable and just. It contains nothing in it other than what is entailed in genuinely loving others. None of the law's prohibitions are unreasonable. None. God's intention in giving the second table of the law is simply to teach us our duty to love others and to teach us the requirements of that love. And so, as much as it depends on us, we seek by every means at our disposal to live in conformity to it. Verse 10, Paul goes on. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So love never injures or harms our neighbor in any sense to any degree. But to the contrary, does our neighbor good? Jason said this earlier in leading the service. Abstinence from sinning is not actually the call to us. That's only a piece. We are to abstain and refrain from harming neighbor, but what is required of us in the law is far greater than that. It is to do our neighbor good in every conceivable way and in every conceivable interaction. 
Consider the weight and the significance of what this requires of us. No one wants to be harmed or murdered or robbed. No one wants their marriage destroyed by adultery. No one wants what they have to be plotted for and lusted after. Now, I know that you feel that way because I feel that way. I don't want any of that. Yet, if we do not have the same level of concern that our neighbors would not suffer these things, then we have already broken the law. If I am not as concerned that you would not suffer harm and robbery and murder and adultery and all of that, if I am not as concerned that you would suffer those things as I am for my own sake, then I am a lawbreaker. I have not loved you as the Lord has called me to love you. What we are called to by God's law is lofty and it is good. It's like Jesus said, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I love how Jesus often summarizes the thrust of the law in a sentence. Love God, love neighbor, right? The first and greatest commandment and the second that's like unto it. Or this, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. That's the second table of the law summed up in a sentence. May we think and live and orient our lives accordingly. Not only do we seek to do no harm to our neighbor, but we seek to serve and help and better and advance our neighbor in every way. Imagine. Speaking of John Lennon again, imagine, right? But imagine if we all lived like that. May it be so. May the Lord give us grace. May we be intentional people in how we think of loving and sacrificing and serving other people. Let's talk for just a minute while we're considering walking in step with the law, and in particular, the call to love and serve. Let's talk about Christian love and service for a minute. To use Martin Luther's words, Christian love and Christian service are very precious, and they are unique. You understand this. The world has categories of loving and serving other people. That's plain. But Christian love and the call of God on our lives is different than the kind of love and service that exists in the world. How so? Well, consider Galatians chapter 5. You don't need to turn there, just listen. Galatians 5.1 begins this way. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, you know, you're familiar with the book of Galatians, many in the room are, that the yoke of slavery that Paul's referring to is works of the law for any portion of righteousness. Paul then goes hard in the paint for a number of verses, being very plain that it's either all of Christ for your righteousness or it's all of you, right? And then he writes these words, for you were called to freedom, brothers. So there that is again. You were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There that is again. That's Galatians 5, 13, and 14. So hear this. I want us to feel this. Christian love and Christian service is the greatest kind of freedom. It is the greatest kind of joy. Christian love and Christian service. It demands nothing. It takes nothing. It uses nothing. Instead, it gives generously from the fullness of what we have already been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Christians can love and serve like that. We love and we serve not out of burden, not out of bondage, not out of coercion, not for selfish gain, but out of the freedom that Christ alone has secured for us now and in eternity. We love and serve because we want to. Because we've been born again and we've been united to the Savior. So if you want to ask yourself a really good diagnostic, self-assessing question, ask, do I want to love and serve my neighbor? Do I want to love and serve the brothers and sisters in this local church? Now, admittedly for all of us, the spirit may be willing and the flesh might be weak. But if your answer to that question, if my answer to that question is no, I don't really want to. That is cause for great concern. And it is an occasion for significant repentance. I'm going to read an entire paragraph from Martin Luther. I don't always read like lengthy excerpts like this, but it's really good for you to hear things that our pastors teach expressed by other saints. So listen, there is a kind of service that is suboptimal, that is bad. And it's not what we're called to as Christians. Listen to Martin Luther describe this. There is yet another servitude of a spiritual nature, and it is the worst. Against this servitude, the apostle fights with all his might on behalf of the Christians. It is this, that people believe that Christians are subject to the whole law and all its burdens. That is, they are of the opinion that such External works of the law are necessary for salvation. Those who think and believe this remain slaves and will never be saved. For they serve the law and the law rules over them because of their foolish belief and their perverted conscience. To this class belong all those who desire to be saved in any other way than alone by faith in Christ. With anxious care, they seek to satisfy the law by their many works and deeds of righteousness. Now, it is true, the apostle and other saints have done such works. And they are being done even today, but not because they must be done, but because believers regard it as their privilege to do them. But hypocrites bind themselves so tightly to works, they do them from coercion and not of their free will. And yet they wish it would not be necessary for them to do these works. This kind of servitude is widely spread, close quote. Strong words. Many people serve out of this motivation, coercion and fear, chasing after something that they don't think they have, all the while resenting the very commands that God has given. 
wishing that this yoke could be taken off of them. That is not Christian love and service. Christian love and service is entirely different. Continuing to think along these lines, along with the Apostle Paul's reasoning in the book of Romans, thinking after even our brother Martin Luther, law and gospel clarity helps us to use the law well in our lives. I'm just going to talk about this for a minute. Clarity on the law and the gospel helps us to use the law well in our lives. So again, I appeal to saints who have gone before. The passion that your pastors have for law and gospel clarity is not unique to us. In his commentary on Romans 13, 8, and you know how Romans 13, 8 reads, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In his commentary on that verse, John Calvin felt the need to double down on how that verse does not teach justification by works in any regard to any extent. And then he wrote these words, quote, and when we say that men are not justified by works, we deny not that the keeping of the law is true righteousness. Amen. But as no one performs it and never has performed it, we say that all are excluded from it and that hence the only refuge is in the grace of Christ. There is always a need to clarify the distinction between the law and the gospel. This is evident even in our day, friends, because I, I'm just going to throw this out there at you. If you're a social media person, you know how they do those polls online, like the, in Twitter, and you do the poll? I've never done one, but I see them. People apparently do these things, where they ask a question and you respond one way or the other. If you were to do such a thing with all of your friends on Facebook or X, Twitter, whatever we're supposed to call it, and you were to ask, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, is that law or gospel? How do you think your friends would respond to that poll question? There would be many people that would answer that and say, well, that's gospel. That's good news. And while it's a great word, that is the summary that Jesus gave of the law, not the gospel. Really important for our purposes today, a lack of clarity on the law and the gospel results in us cutting off the law at the knees in terms of its usefulness to us. Track with me. We, we never go to the law for righteousness. We never go to the law for acceptance before God. We never go to the law to know that we have God's favor. That's important. We don't go to the law so that we can delude ourselves into feeling good about us. It's not how we use it. We stand on the rock who is Christ. We stand in the love of God for us. We rest there and then we look to the law that is holy and good, and we assess ourselves. So if you're zoning out, zone back in, okay? This is important. We go to the law, and we look to the law, and then we assess ourselves. We don't measure ourselves for our standing. We don't measure ourselves for God's favor, but we measure ourselves and assess ourselves regarding our love of neighbor. And I mean really assessing at the level of the heart, the thoughts, the desires. How am I loving my spouse? Like really, 
How am I loving my kids? How am I loving my brothers and sisters in the church? How am I loving my coworkers? How am I loving people that I'm getting to know in the community? How could I love them so much better? Here's one. As you think about your spouse or your kids or your dearest friends, your coworkers, people that you're around a lot, how is it that deep down, I'm kind of out for me in this whole thing? You ever ask yourself that question? How am I with great sounding language with all the right answers and with decent motivations a lot of times, how am I working an angle here so that I get what I want? What's underneath my anger? What's underneath the fact that I seem frustrated six ways from Sunday? I'm irritable. I'm just struggling to be kind. What's underneath that? This is good for us to do. Assess yourself like that. We will learn to better know our faults. We will better see our weaknesses. We will be humbled. We will not regard ourselves as holy. We will be driven all the more to revere the Lord. And we are freed to do what I just said and not shy away from the darkest recesses of our hearts because we are clear on the law and the gospel and where our righteousness is found. You see, if we think any piece of our standing is wrapped up in law keeping, or here we go, this is probably even more relevant to most of us. If we think that our identity, any piece of who we are, is wrapped up in how good we think we're doing at law-keeping. I promise you that we will be all the more likely to manipulate and massage our self-assessment so that it is favorable. We ain't going to admit the real dark stuff. We whitewash it because we deep down are convinced that a piece of our standing, a piece of our righteousness, and a piece of who I am is wrapped up in how good I do at keeping the law. That is bondage, not freedom. And it limits our ability to really assess ourselves and hinders real sanctification. So, with law and gospel clarity, we can stare our sin in the face. We see it for what it is. We grieve. We confess. We repent. We thank God for Jesus Christ and his love for us. And then we pillow our heads and we try again tomorrow. We strive to love better. From freedom, not out of slavery and fear. I've had the privilege to talk with many of you over the last few years about how the preaching of the law and the gospel here has aided your sanctification in the ways that we're talking about. May that be all the more true for me 
and for you. Last comment here before we move on to part two. We tend to be so self-focused in everything, including when we think of the way we think about holiness and the way we think about obedience and the way we even think about the law. It is so self-focused. You realize this, that not committing adultery, not murdering, not stealing, not coveting, the things that Paul lists in our text, loving our neighbors as ourselves, who is that to benefit? That's for the benefit of who? Our neighbor, right? You're like, yeah, brother, no kidding. We can read. We can see it. But so many of our thoughts regarding the pursuit of holiness never get past me. We talk about fighting sin, and we'll even acknowledge that no sin is private, which is true. But most of our thoughts and pursuits of abstaining from sin are about me and how I feel. We are to pursue holiness and conformity to the law for the good of our neighbor. And we are to abstain from sin for our neighbor's benefit. And God is honored in it all. It's a better way to think about your sanctification that is neighbor-oriented for the praise of God's glorious grace. Helps you understand why it matters so much that I would fight sin. Because, you know, I mean, Christ's going to have a lot to do in terms of raising me incorruptible. I mean, it doesn't matter how sanctified I become in this life. There's going to be a lot between however far I get and perfect, which is how I will be raised. So it's not just about my progress for my progress's sake. It is about progressing in sanctification for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my wife and my kids, my friends. May we think in these ways. Part two, living in the day and walking in the light. Living in the day and walking in the light. We're going to look at verses 11 to 14. Put your eyes on verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, says Paul. Besides all this about the law and love being the fulfillment of the law, you know the time. You know that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Okay, we talk a lot about resting in Christ at this church, do we not? We do. We rest in him for righteousness, for our standing, for our identity, for our security, for our peace. We trust Christ alone. Big deal, though. Resting in Christ does not mean coasting. Hear me. Resting in Christ does not mean chill. It means peace in your soul. It means get off the hamster wheel of chasing after righteousness for your peace. But we rest in Christ so that we can love and serve and strive and fight. That is precisely what Paul calls us to in this verse. We're not to coast. We're not to sleepwalk through life. You see it. Wake up. Be vigilant. Be thoughtful. Be intentional. Why? Paul says, you know the time. Because we are closer to salvation now than when we first believed. That was true for the saints in Rome that received this letter. It's true for us. I mean, what's he saying? It's very simple. We are closer to the day that we will pass from this life into the next one, right? It's nearer now than the day we trusted Christ. And so here's the thing. The closer we get to leaving this world, it affects us. At least it should. 
It causes us to think less of this world and more of the world to come. And that affects how a person lives, how a person thinks, how we prioritize our time, how we use our stuff. Paul continues this line of reasoning in the next verse. Verse 12, put your eyes there. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Night in this verse is significant of this age. Day in this verse is significant of our knowledge of the life to come. That knowledge of the life to come, by the way, shines on us only through Christ in the gospel. We live, in other words, brothers and sisters, looking forward to the return of Christ. So then, he goes on, so then, don't miss that word, that transitional phrase there. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. The way the apostles write, the because of, the so then, right? It's everywhere. The knowledge of the life to come and the hope of the resurrection that shines on us through the gospel of Christ, there's a result that should be produced. There's a way that we would then live in light of that. And it is precisely this. Cast off the works of our corrupt flesh and put on the armor of light, the armor of God. Put off, put on. We've talked about this many times. That is language of identity and status. Union with Christ justified, adopted, right? In the armor of light, we would understand that to be synonymous with the armor of God. And we don't have time for this today, but the armor of God is Christ for us. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, that ain't us. That's him for us. That's very interesting too. Like if you notice, words on the page matter. Very interesting that Paul tells us to put off the works of darkness. But then he doesn't say put on the works of light. He says put on the armor. So it seems that we are to conclude that it is the putting on the armor of God, the armor of light, putting on Christ that would fuel and propel us in good works and protect us from the evil one. That fits exactly with where Paul's going in verses 13 and 14. Put your eyes on verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. So let us walk in the light. You read that somewhere, right? First John chapter one. We walk in the light as he is in the light. Not in orgies and drunkenness. I mean, quite, quite literally, not in riotous living, not in debauchery and drunkenness, not in carnality, sexual immorality and sensuality. Brief word right now. We are dogged defenders of Christian freedom here at CBC and Christian liberty. We never bind consciences where the scripture doesn't. And at the same time, may it be crystal clear to every person in this room that Christian freedom is never a license to sin. It is never a reason to cross lines. May we be wise. May we be thoughtful. May we speak to each other. As we live this life together, if we see lines being crossed, we address those. We live thoughtfully, all the while defending our brothers and sisters' rights 
to exercise their Christian liberty. Paul goes on. Notice how he throws in quarreling and jealousy here at the end of this verse. So he's talking about drunkenness and debauchery. He's talking about sexual immorality, sensuality. And then he says, quarreling and jealousy. Not in strife and contentiousness. Don't live that way. Don't live in jealousy and envy. I want to tie this all together. A lot of times it's really useful to illustrate and explain Scripture with Scripture. Just listen to these words from James. Putting together all this stuff. Because I don't know that you and I connect some of the kind of carnal stuff that we crave and desire with this kind of envy and jealousy piece the way that we should. Listen to James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Have you thought about it? It's interesting the way he says that. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Sounds a lot like what Paul's writing about loving neighbor. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What a description of the corruption of our flesh. And how good of God to give us his law to expose all of that. Verse 14, back in Romans. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we rejoice here at CBC, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Do we not? Amen. It's straight up Zechariah 3. We are all like Joshua. Defiled, corrupt, dirty clothes. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in his mercy and grace, looks to us and says, take take those off, and I'm going to clothe you in pure vestments. He has given us a garment to wear. That wedding garment that will be required, he gives it to us. By faith, we receive that. But that's not what Paul's talking about here in Romans 13, 14. He's talking about putting on Christ unto sanctification. Not justification, sanctification. More on this in a moment. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, beloved, this is a call to the moderate and reasonable use of things. This is not... Romans 13, 14 is not a call to asceticism, not a call to monastic living, right? Think Colossians 2. Paul and the apostles are very clear. We are to to take care of our bodies. We're to help others take care of themselves. But here's the thing. We are not to cross lines to indulge the lusts and the cravings of the flesh. We should use and enjoy things. So brother, what's a positive way to put this? Glad you asked. 
We should use and enjoy things in a way that helps us in our pilgrimage to the new heavens and the new earth. Does that make sense? We should use and enjoy things in this life in a way that even points us to our heavenly home. We should use and enjoy things in this life and see them as foretastes of the joy and the pleasures that await. We should not use and consume things in a way that causes us to forget our heavenly home, but to just fall more in love with this life. We shouldn't do that. Now, let's talk honestly with each other for a minute. Every person in this room, myself included, we all have cravings and desires, passions that we are ashamed of. Do we not? We do. Every one of us would be horrified at the thought of the things that we have contemplated this week being put up on that screen for all to see. Terrifying. So, how do we live? Well, we live thoughtful lives in these regards. We don't walk headlong into temptation. Don't. Don't put yourself in situations where you know exactly what's going to happen, and it ain't good. Don't justify that away. Don't give yourself access to things that you know are going to cause you to sin. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Don't be so short-sighted. We all live like this. This is one of the great tools and strategies of the evil one. All we see in the moment is the gratification that's instant. We don't see the wreckage that comes after. Don't be a fool. And nothing that I've just said is legalism. If you think it is, talk to me at the back door. That is not legalism. That's called wisdom. That's called walking in the light. It's living in a way that is commensurate with the gospel and the hope of the world to come. Inasmuch as you interact with me, I can at least say this personally. Remind me on a regular basis, brother, it ain't worth it. It is not worth it. Anything that you might want or crave, forget about it. Christ is worth it. The new heavens and the new earth is worth it. This church, these people are too important. Don't go there. May we talk like that. You're familiar with the latter portion of Galatians chapter 5. In verse 16, Paul says these words. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we've thought a lot in Romans about how walking according to the Spirit is what? To receive the righteousness of Christ and not seek to establish our own, right? We've talked about that a lot. And the fruit of the Spirit, what else does Paul write in Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit, you know them. Kids in the room, you know this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know this. Now, these... You want to talk about Christian maturity. Those are the marks of a mature Christian. The Spirit will produce them in us, and we should cultivate them. Both are true. Paul goes on. After he's talked about the works of the flesh are obvious, but the fruit of the Spirit are these things. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You know what he says right after that? Because we, we hear the phrase walk by the Spirit, we immediately go super private, mystical, me and the Lord. What does Paul say? Because there's no breaks 
in the chapters and all in the original. You get this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. Then, Galatians 5.26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Interesting. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Connect, in other words, connect that walking in the Spirit, verse 25, to verses 26 through Galatians 6 too. That's helpful in thinking about what it looks like. Put some, put some flesh on the bone for me, brother, in terms of what walking by the Spirit might look like. Consider those words of the apostle. It's helpful. We receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. And then practically, the fruit of the Spirit is born out in us, and we seek to live lives of intentional love toward our brothers and sisters. Quite simple. Now, the exhortation, this is how we'll conclude our time. The exhortation in verse 14 of Romans 13 from the Apostle Paul, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I said a minute ago, He's not talking about put Christ on for your righteousness, for your standing. He is saying put Christ on for your sanctification so that you might be sanctified. Consider these words of Paul from 1 Corinthians. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote these words, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Justin, what are you getting at? The Apostle Paul encourages in multiple places in his letters. He exhorts us to consider Christ and to behold him so that we might be changed. Consider Jesus and behold Jesus so that we might be transformed, so that we might grow in grace, so that we might progress in sanctification. Jesus, after all, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in all things he is preeminent. Now, what I'm about to do is nothing magical. We're just going to consider our Savior for a minute. You can do this too in your own life. As you read the Gospels, as you get to know him, think these ways. Behold him. Know him. Know him in his baptism. How he said for our sakes to John the Baptist, it's good that we would do this, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Know him. Know him in his temptation where he stood to face your great enemy and mine, the one who had deceived our first father. And he was victorious for our sake, right? 
He defeated the devil with the truth of God. He is the new and better Adam. See him. Know him. Behold him and how he preached the law. Jesus is the greatest preacher of the law that ever has been on the earth. Think Matthew 5. It's been referenced at multiple points today. How he came and exploded self-righteousness and man-made religion. You think you're keeping the law. You have not. Because here is what the Lord requires. The greatest standard of righteousness in the history of the universe. And let me explain it to you. See him. Know him. How he taught the standard of the law even in his parables. You know the good Samaritan when the, the scribe stands up and asks, what do I need to do to enter into eternal life? Jesus says, what's in the law? How do you read it? And the scribe says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's exactly right. Do it, and you'll live. Right? See him. No one spoke like him. Right? And then the scribe says, all right, well, who's my neighbor then? He's trying to justify himself according to what? The law. And then Christ tells a parable. We know it as the Good Samaritan that is the most over-the-top, wonderful demonstration of genuine love for a neighbor that could be depicted. Now go and do the same, he said. See him. See, know, and behold him and what he taught us about ourselves even. Not to be cruel, but so that we might know that he's our only hope, right? He said, it's not what you eat or drink that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Think of him, behold him, know him as he sits and speaks to a Jewish audience and tells them that they search the scriptures thinking that in them they find eternal life. And he says, can you imagine such a statement? It is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Behold him. Know him and how he always taught in such a way that the only recourse for sinners was to cast ourselves at his feet. And he's happy to bend down and meet us there. Whether it's the woman of the city or the woman caught in adultery, or you pick your person. The woman at the well. Behold him and how he healed on the Sabbath day. Why was he always doing stuff on the Sabbath day? Offending everybody. But what was, what was he doing? He was reorienting the perspective of the one day in seven. This day was made for your benefit, right? This is God's goodness to you. Behold him and how he taught the grace of God in such a way that, frankly, offends all of us. Just read the parable of the laborers in the vineyard this afternoon. You'll get worked up. This isn't fair. Exactly, it's better than fair. It's called grace. Behold him and his compassion and his gentleness toward the weak and the lowly, toward those who knew they needed him. He is gentle and lowly and compassionate and kind. And he says, come to me. Here's one. Behold him in how he grieved over the wreckage that's produced by the curse. You remember when he healed a deaf man and he kneels down? 
he looks up to heaven and he sighs before he sticks his fingers in the man's ear and heals him. You remember him when his friend Lazarus died and how he wept over that. And he was about to raise him from the grave. See how he cares and how he loves. Behold him. Behold and see and know him in his dogged commitment to do all of the work that the Father had given him. Luke 9.51, Isaiah 50, verse 7. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, to die for us. See him. Behold him. Behold him in his wisdom and how he shut the mouths of opponents on the regular. We thought about one last week. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Hey, give me a coin. Whose inscription's on that thing? Uh, Caesar's is. Great. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And they're like, well, I guess we ain't got anything else to do here. We're done. Marvel at him and how he stopped the mouths of opponents. Marvel at him and behold him and see how he pursued his people, including a blind man that was thrown out of the synagogue. Consider what he said about being our good shepherd. And then consider his commands that he gives to us. I'm going to give you a new one, he says. People will know that you're mine if you do this. Go love each other. Consider that. Consider his goodness. His clear teaching that we uphold every piece of the moral law. Behold him and how he laid his life down of his own accord and how at the end of it all he cried out, it's finished, and he meant what he said. Behold him. Consider how on the third day, he, he laid in the ground on the Sabbath day. On the seventh day, he rested from all of his work of redemption. And then consider how he got up from the grave triumphant. Not only over death, but over the enemy and over sin to usher us into God's Sabbath rest forever. Behold him. Consider him and how he prays for us. For our preservation and our protection. For our sanctification, for our love and for our unity. Consider how he prayed for Peter. You remember that one, Luke 22? Peter, Satan has desired to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Behold him. What a savior. He then tells us to go and make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them everything that he's commanded. And he said that he's with us, even to the end of the age. Consider how he assures us that the Father himself loves us, and that it will be the Father's delight to give us the kingdom. Behold him and how he promised that he has us and he'll keep us and that he's going to prepare a place for us and he wouldn't tell us that that's true if he wasn't going to deliver. Saints of CBC, behold our Savior. Believe in him. Put all your hope and your trust in him. Behold his power. Behold his holiness. Behold his love. Behold his grace. And be transformed. May it be. Let's pray.